Hey, lovebirds. This is a hard message for me to record, but I have to do it. The Love Drive is and has been a labor of love and has been self-funded for the last few years with the hope that at one point it would become listener-supported. And I have not done my job because I haven't let you know that I need help. The Love Drive needs financial support. So if you believe in the mission of spreading love through emotional intimacy. And if you believe that people should have access to emotionally intelligent, loving, and heartwarming content, then I invite you to put your money where your heart is. Monthly contributions start for as little as $3. That is the price of a decent cup of coffee. And it might not sound like a lot, but for me, it's literally life-changing. Every contribution that I receive goes towards paying for the bills, um, the production costs of this podcast, um, the investment for the equipment, contributors that can help with editing, with transcriptions so that people who can't hear very well can also have access to these conversations. And this work is really important to me. And if you've been getting something out of the love drive and you feel that it's worth $3, $5, $10 a month, then I invite you to become a contributing lovebird. And if you want to live in a more loving and connected world and you think that the love drive is doing its part to make that happen, then join us and give what you can. Because some people can't give at all, and that's fine. We're not always in a financial position to help. But if you are, it would mean the world to me and to us. So go to thelovedrive.com forward slash join if you want to become a contributing lovebird. Thank you so much. And here is your episode. Oh, wait, one more thing. That link to become a sustaining member is also located in the show notes for this episode in your podcast player. Cool. Like you can wake up and look at your belly and lament it, but could you also take the steps that you need to take to take care of it, to meet its needs? You know, because that's hard sell to accept and love your body. That's a really hard sell for a lot of people. I'm so excited about this conversation with Jenna Hollenstein, who is a non-diet dietitian, meditation teacher, and the author of a book called Eat to Love, A Mindful Guide to Transforming Your Relationship with Food, Body, and Life. And I could honestly say this is the only book I have ever pre-ordered because when I found out about it, it spoke to me on such a deep level that I had to have it. And I wasn't disappointed. If you struggle with emotional eating or have a hard time accepting your body, or have obsessed over food, and you want to change that relationship, then you're going to get a kick out of this episode. Jenna is no nonsense, no bullshit, totally hilarious, incredibly smart. And it was a dream to talk to her, really. This book has changed the way I look at food. And I'm so, so grateful. And I'm pumped that you get to enjoy it as well. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive.
<laughs> Jenna, mm-hmm. could you please introduce yourself? I'm Jenna Hollenstein, and I'm a registered dietitian and a intuitive eating certified counselor and a meditation instructor and an author occasionally. Of a book that just that was just recently published? Yes, yes. It's called Eat to Love, a mindful guide to transforming your relationship with food, body, and life. I gotta tell you, I'm not the type of person that pre-orders books, but I pre I pre-ordered this book. Wow. Yeah. Why? Well, because I'm a huge fan of Susan Piver. When she endorsed it on Facebook, it just spoke to me. Yeah. Like at a really deep, deep level. I have always struggled with emotional eating, with eating when I'm not hungry, with eating too much. And I have not had like a great relationship with my body. You know, I have, there's a lot of negative self talk and negative body image. And it's been like that since, you know, as long as I can remember. So the book really spoke to me. Really, since as long as you can remember. I remember what, I was in the back seat of my mom's car with my friend Julian, and I was probably six or seven years old. And I looked at his knees, and he had little, what I thought were regular knees. And I looked at my knees, and I had these big, fat, chunky knees. And I like wish that my knees were like regular sized. That was a before and after moment. What was the after moment? So I, I think of those as like before and after moments, like. Before you looked at Julian's knees and thought that yours were somehow deficient, it might not have occurred to you that something was wrong with your body. Yeah. And then after that moment, you had a heightened sensitivity. Like, oh, my body is different than other bodies and and probably mine is the one that needs to change. Mm. Somehow along the way, I realized as I'm like reflecting on my knees is that, you know, I could, I squat quite a bit now and I don't know that Julian does, you know, like, so my body has served me in, in ways in which Julian's body, you know, is, isn't as well adapted to certain activities. Right. Because bodies are different for lots of different reasons, most of which are completely out of our control. And I think if we were a little bit better at accepting the fact that there are natural variations between us and between populations, I feel like we wouldn't be in this predicament where so many of us feel this disconnection with our bodies and this sense of inferiority. If we put a hundred people from all over the world, just random and we just like stripped them and put them, lined them up all naked, mm-hmm. you would see an incredible variety. It's true. In body size and shape. And assuming that none of them had been programmed with the diet mentality, that would be their sort of natural state, right? I mean, in terms of weight, right. body size, because hair color is going to be different. Skin color is going to be different. Height is going to be different. We don't seem to like take issue with those things as much as we do in terms of body size. Because we have been socialized and bombarded with images of what beautiful should look like. And beautiful is really, is really lean. 
Well, yeah, it's really lean and it's really white. And it's really, um, at times it's like more skinny and at other times it's more athletic. Mm -hmm. It is, it's generally whatever is hardest to achieve because everybody makes the comparison of when, you know, in different economic times, having a more robust figure was a sign of wealth, affluence and access, right? And then that was the type of body that people wanted you know you can even go back a hundred years maybe a little bit before a hundred years because it was right around a hundred years ago that women were doing like slimming treatments and the flapper was kind of like the the ideal but even before that and in other times too people were having were taking gainer treatments to bulk up to have a more voluptuous body wow yeah, I have a girlfriend in the past who said that she was born in the she should have been born in the eighties, the eighteen eighties, because she had like a more of a, you know, curvy, soft body. Yeah. A woman's body. She had a woman's body, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a man's body. Or I mean, she had her body. She had her body. Right. Yeah. It's funny, you're uh sort of like a, a non diet dietitian. Yeah, I, I vacillate between non-diet dietitian, anti-diet dietitian, and actually I heard myself say the words for the first time, I think, fat positive dietitian a few weeks ago when explaining like what I do. And I really like the sound of it because whether I'm talking about the macronutrient fat or the presence of fat on the body, I really do feel fat positive. Mm. I think generally right now, fat positive means that I'm an ally to people in bigger bodies and that I can work to, to communicate to all of the people in, influ- you know, in positions of influence that people in bigger bodies are perfectly capable of achieving wellness. But more importantly, they're deserving of appropriate and equitable treatment. Because I think that's one of the interesting things that's come up is that because of this programming that we have, both from all the industries that profit off of it and also the medical establishment, there's a, almost a justifiable prejudice against people in bigger bodies. And I think that's, that's um, misinformed. What's the argument? The argument is that they're costing the healthcare system money because they're higher risk of certain diseases. I mean, that's part of the argument, but I think, I think beneath that and beneath all the other arguments is that they're in control of their weight. And if they worked hard enough, they could decrease their body weight. They could lose weight. I've worked a long time trying to get abs uh-huh. to very little. I mean, it just hasn't happened. And I've also been kind of miserable a lot of the time doing what you call magical eating. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I mean, I, I love the idea that like, if I just eat a certain way, if I could figure it out, just the perfect balance of foods, I will be happy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's magical because it doesn't, that doesn't exist. And it's also magical because there's no way to prove it's not true. 
right? Because we don't know what's going to happen. So if we're kind of thinking of this, and there's so many opportunities and products and approaches out there, we can attach to the idea that maybe the one that's going to finally work is just around the corner. And we can ignore the fact that history is the best predictor of the future. Mm. And that time and time again, when we've attempted these things, they've not materialized. And they've, in fact, probably caused us a lot of grief. So, but I think the key point is the, the, the subtle attachment with a certain way of eating or having a certain body with the idea of happiness and safety and like freedom from suffering. If I get abs, I will finally be happy. Yeah. And well, and I, I think a lot of people are, are looking for the diet that will allow them to live forever. And not, not necessarily that they actually want to live forever, but that they just don't want to die. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't seen it that way at all. Yeah. I mean, my father-in-law has a saying about people who hoard money and who prioritize money over other things of value in their lives. He says, you know, they'll be the richest one in the graveyard. And I've kind of co-opted that concept, you know, for the whole clean diet movement and things like that. And be like, yeah, you'll be the cleanest corpse in the graveyard because you're still going to die. <laughs> you'll have the sweetest abs in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. But at what cost? Exactly. There was a chart in your book that sh- sort of uh, outlined sort of what happens in a yo-yo diet situation. You know, you'll 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 start a diet and then like yeah, you'll lose some weight because you're restricting certain foods that you really like, and then you'll uh, you'll lose focus or you'll you'll fucking lose your shit and you'll go and eat all that stuff that you've been restricting yourself from eating and you'll binge on it and then you'll eventually you'll you might you might gain all that weight back and then some because then there's shame there's oh fuck well it's it's all over now i might as well just really go for it and then you turn it around you go back into and that actually causes a weight gain rather than weight loss well and and it's not just about losing focus or like it feels like we're just losing our shit, right? But the truth is that there are biological mechanisms at play because our bodies are trying to protect us because our ability to store fat and to function on less is the reason that you and I are having this conversation. We'd all be dead if we didn't have this capacity to change the way we metabolize nutrients to be more efficient when in times of scarcity. Right. You know, and women's bodies in particular are very adaptable. Like one of the statistics I point out in the book is that during famine, I think like 50% of men die and 10% of women die. And part of that is because women's bodies are so capable of storing fat and subsisting and supporting the body on minimal resources. And so that yo-yo thing, or, or a lot of people refer to it now as weight cycling. Right. You know, and note, I didn't put in that chart, I didn't put like what the starting weight is because we all start at different natural weight ranges. You know, some of us are at 120, some of us are at 160, some of us are at 200, 250, and that's fine. Like you said, if, if you take 100 bodies and just put them up there, they're all going to be different. 
they're all going to have different natural starting points. It's when we start to try to manhandle our bodies and overpower them for the purposes of changing weight that we distort that natural range. We distort that natural kind of set point. Mm. And so because of the physiologic mechanisms that protect us, when we decrease our intake in order to create a deficit, right? And I learned this in school. If you cut 500 calories a day, you lose a pound a week. Calories in, calories out. Yeah, like simple math problem, right? But in fact, it's not so simple because we adapt. That's one of our skills. We adapt. If you start cutting back on what you're taking in or you burn more, your body's going to sense the deficit and it's going to start to slow down and become more efficient and learn to function on less. And then when we resume, because our biological mechanisms make food look more appealing because we're hungry, it smells better, it tastes better, um, it affects our mood, and, and we develop an a, a increasing kind of psychological sense of deprivation, that's when the pendulum swings in the opposite direction. So it's not just that loss of focus, it's the I, I always consider it like the overlapping circles of biology and psychology, and they're sort of more overlapping than not. Those mechanisms kick into play, and they make it unsustainable to stay on a diet. It's not about losing focus. It's really like, this is in our DNA. This is how we survive. Exactly. And it's so interesting, the dynamic that we set up of fighting with our bodies when our bodies are working like crazy to just take care of us, mm. you know? Yeah. I used to say that it takes a lot of work to just keep uh, a body going. Oh, it's hard to have a body sometimes. And we don't really have a choice. What choice do we have? <laughs> I mean, we're so lucky also to have a body. <clears throat> and I think that that's, you know, so many of these little these little points that we're touching on are are what made the the marriage of this approach to eating that's very much based in intuitive eating with Buddhist philosophy such an obvious match. Like just the idea to acknowledge how lucky we are to have a human body. You know, there's a there's a, a basic teaching in, in Buddhist thought that says remember the preciousness of a human birth. But that comes with difficulties too. I started this practice. I don't know if I got it from your book or, or from other related materials, but in the morning, you know, instead of looking at my body and, and like, and focusing on my belly and going like, come on, belly, like, why are you here? Saying like, hey, body, what's up? Like, what, what do you need today? Do you know what I do in the morning? Tell me. <laughs> when I this, I haven't told anybody this. When I get out of the shower, I have this like very cool like microfiber towel that like dries my hair enough, but not too much. But you have to like bend over to put it on and then wrap it up. So as I'm doubled over, I look at my body with everything kind of hanging down. You know, my belly, my thighs, my boobs post breastfeeding. Everything's hanging down, and I'm just like, "Good morning." How are you? Thank you. That is the most vulnerable position. It totally is. Yeah. Or like all scrunched up. And so, yeah, why not welcome our body right there? Do you remember that episode of Golden Girls 
when they talked about like how you look if you put a mirror on a table and you look down at it versus if you lay back and you put the thing up like that. <laughs> I remember Blanche going like, ah! And then she's like, oh, I look beautiful here. I mean, that's how we take we take selfies from exactly. from up up above. I mean, my friend even said, hey man, your Instagram stories, like you gotta you gotta lift your phone up higher, put it away, you know, put it further away so that you look better. Because or else I was doing it like this and I just, you know, double chin and Yeah. And you know what? There's something lovely and adorable about doing that. Because it's like, who cares? I mean, vulnerabilities in these days, by the way. Oh, thank, thank you, Brene Brown. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I have so many different d- directions that we can go in, but it, it would seem like a, a good place for us to go is to talk about how does Buddhist philosophy play into uh, the Eat to Love path? Well, I think that the most in the most basic way, it values our own intelligence. So Buddhist philosophy believes that we're born with Buddha nature or basic goodness, which is quite different from the Judeo-Christian concept of like original sin, of like being born bad and needing to earn goodness through suffering in order to reap your ultimate reward. Buddha nature is that we're born with goodness, we're born with wholeness, we're born with worthiness. And we're deserving of generosity. We're deserving of kindness and compassion simply because we exist. And so I saw that as so poignant and and appropriate as a counterpoint to the diet culture, which teaches you that you can't trust this thing. This thing can't be trusted because if left to your own devices, You know, we'd eat nothing but chocolate cake and cheeseburgers all day. That's right. And Ben and Jerry's to top it off. Mm -hmm. So what if we were to focus on shifting our allegiance from all the experts, myself included, to our own intelligence? I think that so many people profit off of creating a dependence and profit off of planting seeds of doubt about the need to manhandle our weight, the need to take an overblown degree of personal responsibility for our health, when in fact, a lot is out of our control. And so this, you know, is about taking that bath, recognizing the costs of handing that over, and finding a balance between scientific knowledge, which is important, but also valuing our own perspective you know in part this was conceived because of the like flip-flopping headlines with nutrition science eggs are great eggs are bad (laughs) dairy's great dairy's the devil don't eat kale kale's the best i know or do you know how much sugar there there is in carrots i was thinking about that this morning as i was cutting up carrots for my partner's lunch but what about your eyesight right (laughs) So, I mean, if nutrition research is so hard to do, and it's so hard to know what is right, then perhaps it's more important to connect with our physical bodies and the, the intelligence 
that comes from being able to listen to them, receive messages from them, respond to them, evaluate how those responses work for us, and to continue this. It's like, you know, the original long-term relationship with our bodies. This is, we're going to have it. That's it. It's me and me for the rest of my life. That's all we get. Yeah. You know, we're talking about impermanence. Well, that's permanent, by the way. (laughs) It is in one way because we don't get to switch it out for somebody else's, but it is constantly changing. Sure. And so from my perspective, the sooner we switch this perspective on our bodies and the importance of, you know, we don't have to love them all the time, but the importance of working with them as they are now in this moment the better equipped we will be able to face aging and illness and ultimately death. We don't have to love them, but accepting them is going to make it a lot easier. Yes, but we don't even have to accept them. Oh. Like we can, we can think whatever we want. Like you can wake up and look at your belly and lament it. But could you also take the steps that you need to take to take care of it, to meet its needs, you know, cause that's a hard sell to accept and love your body. That's a really hard sell for a lot of people. It's a hard sell for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, in intuitive eating, they talk about unconditional permission to eat. And I think it's really important to also give ourselves unconditional permission to think and feel. Yeah. There's no thought that we can't have about our bodies. Cause you know, in reality, we don't always feel so positively. Like any long-term relationship, there are lots of peaks and valleys. You know, the other morning when I woke up after sleeping in a hotel bed for two, for two nights and I had this nerve pain aggravated, I was depressed. I felt upset and I felt impatient with my body and anxious about something being wrong with it. And then, you know, the more I worked with it and the more I sat with it and the more I felt it, it passed. And I also did what I needed to do to take care of it through movement, through stillness, through feeding myself, through being gentle and kind. You know, so you can do those two things. You can hold those two seemingly conflicting points of view at the same time. My therapist said that having multiple competing emotions about any one thing is a sign of emotional maturity. I totally agree. I think it's the basis of compassion. I mean, I, I have that right here. The ability to hold two seemingly conflicted points of view in the same heart is the basis for compassion. And it's the truth because we're complex little beings. And this relationship with food and our bodies, it's complicated. You know, on the, on the one hand, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. Sounds easy. Sounds simple. It's not easy. There's a lot of things that distort it. And a lot of things that cause us to question are our perspective. But we can also work to regain that trust that I believe we're born with because we have Buddha nature and because we have these highly intelligent and communicative bodies. I am on board with Buddha nature. I'm on board with the fact that our bodies hold the wisdom that we need. I, I, that that makes so much sense to me. I. Uh, tried the ketogenic diet, obviously. Mm -hmm. And man, I felt terrible. Really? 
Felt terrible. Yeah. And my buddy was like, oh, you need more salt. So now I'm like taking salt. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not pooping. He's like, oh, now you need magnesium. So I'm taking magnesium. And then it's like, oh, there's some other, there was, oh, now I'm feeling queasy. It's like, okay, well, you need this. So it's like, whoa, what is going on here? Like my body's saying, dude, this is not working for you. So the ketogenic diet is a highly effective diet for seizure disorder in children. And I'm not a child and I don't have seizures. Right. And I remember when I was a grad student at Tufts, um, at the medical center in Boston, measuring out cream and butter and cheese for kids who were having 200 seizures a day and watching their seizures go down. I mean, it was an incredibly difficult thing for the child and for their families to be deprived in this way, but it also was sort of liberating. Um, but what we're doing with the ketogenic diet is, you know, manipulating some uh, an approach that is effective in another setting for the purposes of weight loss. And it fits so perfectly with our current hysteria over sugar. Something that's really interesting that's happened for me since I've read your book, I gave myself absolute permission. You know, and, and that's scary because do I really trust? Do I trust myself? Like, do I trust? I trust you. Yes, thank you. And and that's what I got through the book. Do I trust my body to know what's right and what's wrong? And so for a couple of weeks, I gave absolute permission. And I bought and I had pizzas and ice cream and I and I had it in the house, which I ne- I normally don't. And but you know, when you have absolute permission, you also have to put in some of these other tools that you give into practice, like mindfulness mm-hmm. and mindful eating and eating without distraction. And that was a huge that was a huge game changer for me was just like sitting at the table and eating with nothing, no phone, no reading, no nothing, just feeling what I'm feeling. And one of the things that I, I did was I developed uh, a more awareness at my fullness scale. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And then I also developed awareness at like, how hungry am I? And when you have that with permission to eat whatever you want, it seems to sort of over time regulate itself. It does. It does because you have that capacity. You have that capacity to pick up on signals that are coming from your body in real time. Yeah. Because they're not overpowered by either distractions or thoughts of, I shouldn't be eating this, I shouldn't be eating this, I shouldn't be eating this, and therefore I want it, I want it, I want it. You get to figure out now what you really like. And I enjoyed it more. When I mean, when, when you're not berating yourself for not eating the ice cream while you're eating the ice cream, it tastes a lot better. Right? There are so many beautiful uh, benefits from the Eat to Love movement path. You know, like uh, slowing down and tasting every bite. At one point, you do realize when, you're, when it's starting to not taste that good anymore. And then you could say like, okay, I think I'm, I'm actually kind of done eating, but I've never... For me, it's Cadbury mini eggs. You can't just have... what? That's a half a bag. No, it's, it's about a, a sixth of a bag. What size? Is that a share size? What is that? This is um, a 10-ounce bag. I bought it on Saturday and I've been like little by little. But, you know, a couple of times I've eaten to the point where I'm like, mm, that last one didn't taste so good, you know? And that's, you don't have to finish the bag. Right. 
I don't have to finish the plate. I mean, that is a foreign concept to me that I have made a plate of food and I can leave a third of it or a fourth of it. I mean, it's like, oh, but there's only three more bites left. Why wouldn't I finish it? And I can, I can set it down and I can finish it 10 minutes from now. That's the masterclass. <laughs> that is the masterclass because it doesn't matter. All of those, all of those things are external and arbitrary amounts. You know, the, the fact that this is a 10 ounce bag, who cares? That has nothing to do with what I need. What if one day I needed 11 ounces of Cadbury mini eggs? It's unlikely because just of the fireworks that come from too many Cadbury mini eggs. But like the same thing is like when, when you get a, um, you know, the, my, my nemesis is those hundred calorie packs of anything. Those work on you? No, 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 no. I, I just can't stand them. Oh, okay. The idea that a hundred being a round number and therefore, you know, that should be our kind of goal. The idea that we can even claim to have a hundred calories of a food in a package when in truth, those nutrition labels are like plus or minus 20%. Oh. They, you know, it could be 80 calories. It could be 120 calories. It's probably not a round number. But the idea that that should regulate how much we take in has distorted, has added to the distortion that we have in terms of like not trusting ourselves. Yeah. Because what if you need two and a half of those to feel satisfied? What if, you know, you're going out for dinner in an hour, but you're hungry. And so you decide that half of one of those is actually what you need to, so that you're no longer hungry, but that you're the the amount of hungry that you want to be when you get to your favorite restaurant. Right. You know? That's an interesting point. I read somewhere in the book, you know, what's it going to take for you to be satisfied? Because it's no use eating half of the thing if it doesn't satisfy you. Oh, yeah, that, that's right. If what you really want is pizza, but instead you're going to say, well, I should eat a salad instead. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eat a salad. You're still not satisfied. You might that night binge on all sorts of other shit that you have laying around at home when really and the pizza well and the pizza or or you don't even or you could have just had the pizza mm-hmm. you would have been satisfied you would have been happy you would have gone to bed you know and you could move on you can move on you could use that mental real estate for other things like climate change <laughs> yeah that's that's not real by the way but yeah by thinking if <laughs> if it's real or not <laughs> there are more important things than food like we don't have to obsess over food all day long. You know, I, I do have to say, I did for a little bit, I was doing one meal a day. And oh yeah, it's super challenging to only eat one meal a day. It also ends up being pretty big meal. And then I felt really sick after. Yeah. But the freedom of only eating once a day, ridding myself of what am I going to eat? Right. Prepping all that stuff. I mean, I'm not endorsing this at all. It didn't work. I actually lost a bunch of weight. And then now I'm at my heaviest that I've ever been in like the last eight years. So obviously it doesn't work. But, you know, thinking about food and prepping it and eating it, it takes up a lot of our day. It does. And I think we also shouldn't fault ourselves or shame ourselves for thinking about food. You know, like I say sometimes to clients, you know, I'm sure you have plenty of original thoughts, but like this is not one of them right? These thoughts were like fed to us that, you know, there's a right and a wrong way to eat. So the fact that food is on our minds is not a problem. It's the quality of the thoughts. 
And so I think that it's important to recognize that this, like everything else, is a dynamic thing that can evolve and continue evolving. So what can start out as like obsession can start to move to like more focused hyper awareness that actually is more workable. Obsession kind of is like a hamster in a wheel, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. But like a, a, a greater focus and hyper awareness can actually be approached with curiosity and openness and like, oh, okay, so I'm just collecting data now. Mm-hmm. If I start eating when I'm this hungry, I have this kind of eating experience and I eat to this degree of fullness. If I start eating when I'm this degree of hungry, I have this type of eating experience and eat to this degree of fullness. So once we collect plenty of these data points, we start to get a feel for working with our bodies and and not just figuring out what the right levels are or whatever like that, but how to work with them in real time and to respond to their natural variations. So that gradually this moves into what I would call like mindfulness. And it's not an absence of thinking about food because everyone has to think about eating. You know, a lot of people come to me and they're like, I just don't want to think about food anymore. But I think the real need there is to think about food in a way that's not distressing. Think about food in a way that is sustaining and nourishing and feels like it's one of the things you do to care for yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of other things that you can think about too. What are the interesting benefits of being more mindful about when I'm hungry? And also, what is the effect that this food is having on me? Mm-hmm. Right? And so... You know, when you're watching TV and you're eating ice cream, you, you sort of aren't really engaged with the the experience of eating the ice cream. Right. But what I what I've realized is that when I eat ice cream, I don't feel that great after. My body doesn't really like it. Likes it in the moment, doesn't really like the after effects. You know, I kind of feel queasy, I kind of feel heavy, a little mucusy. And I've been able to remember that when it comes to, hey, what do I want to eat and also how do I want to feel after? Yeah. And then it becomes a choice. And the and the choice to eat it and the choice to not eat it are on the same moral plane. One doesn't have more charge than the other. You know? Yeah. Because there might be a type of ice cream that you will choose to have because it's worth it to you. Yeah, homemade ice cream or maybe at a wedding or like there's a reason why not just sort of uh, mindlessly grabbing the thing because I know that it's going to taste good in the in the meantime. Also, I know that it's going to make me feel shitty after, which is going to take my mind off of what's really happening. Mm-hmm. I've been an emotional eater for as long as I can remember. And, and something that really struck me in the book is, you know, when you eat to change the way you feel, you're not actually addressing the original issue, yeah. right? Is why are you sad? Why are you angry? Like, what's what's causing that? Instead, I'm just sort of masking it and saying, I'll deal with that later, but it keeps coming up. Sometimes emotional eating is the best that we can do. And I mean, when it comes down to it in the scheme of things that we that we do to distract ourselves from what's actually going on, it's it's on the the less harmful end of the spectrum. Sure. But if we're in a position to look more closely at it, if it feels safe, you know, because there's a lot of really scary reasons that people are better off using food than dealing with the underlying stuff. I mean, trauma is very widespread and looking directly at 
our discomfort can be really, really destabilizing for us. And food is comforting and soothing and grounding in some ways. I want to just acknowledge that. Even the things that we do that we consider the most dysfunctional are really born out of a desire to just feel okay. And we don't really learn skills for moving toward discomfort in our culture. We're, we're sort of told to cheer up and um, look on the bright side, and it's not that bad. And stop crying, little boy. It's no wonder that we do these things. It's no wonder that we go for that quick fix that meets a lot of different needs. Yeah. But if we're in a position where we can look at it, or we have a sense of that this too is costing us some, somehow, then yeah, it can be really interesting to start to pay attention to what is really asking for attention. I mean, it sounds like, fo- I mean, food is the original soother, right? Baby's crying. No. You give it food, you give it the boob. And it stops crying, right? And so it's not... Well, if hunger is the real reason it's crying. Ah. But if the baby is sick or wet or in pain, then feeding is not going to help. Mm. There are some forms, I, I guess, of, of, of discomfort in which feeding would soothe. And it's not exactly hunger. But um, it's important to notice that there are a lot of different needs that we have. And for some of us, a lot of us, I would say, it's almost like approaching a baby. How do I translate this cry? What does this mean? What do you really need? And we have to start that dialogue with our, with our bodies, which are connected to our minds and our hearts. You know, there's no separation there. Where do we start? Other than buying your book, obviously. I mean, I always think it's easier to start with biology. So... When it comes to deepening our sensitivity to interoceptive awareness, that like ability to pick up on signals that are happening in real time in our bodies, I start with hunger. Because of all of the things that we can experience in our bodies, that can be on the, the lesser end of um, provocative. Fullness can be harder to connect with. Right. Physical manifestations of emotions can be really hard. But just starting to recognize that you are able to detect what's happening in your body the moment it's happening starts to, again, build that collection of data, build that trust. It also has the effect of helping you eat more regularly, which stabilizes you physically, which has the effect of somewhat stabilizing you emotionally psychologically right that makes it a little easier to start to pay attention to the other things and when you recognize when you're hungry and what that feels like in all its different gradients you also start to notice when that those sensations are absent so when those sensations are absent and you find yourself wanting to eat then you have another kind of set of questions you can start to ask yourself well what's going on here I'm not hungry, but I want to eat. Is food really what I need right now? I can always eat. There's no judgment around it if I have unconditional permission to eat, right? But maybe it's worth my time and effort to 
spend a little time with this and see what's really going on. I find there's one teaching in particular that I really love, and it's probably the origin of the idea for the book. And it's this little saying, three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. And it's this idea that a lot of the ways in which we change how we're feeling in the moment, you alluded to this earlier, are based on either grasping after pleasure or pushing away discomfort. We're kind of like numbing out to things that we don't care about or don't want to look at. When you notice that you're having that desire to eat in the absence of hunger, you can ask yourself, am I sort of trying to hold on to something pleasurable? Am I grasping onto pleasure? As in the case of a party that I don't want to end kind of a thing, as it's naturally dissolving and the lights are getting switched on and everybody's leaving, <laughs> you know, or am I pushing away something that, I, that is uncomfortable to me and trying to replace it with something that I deem pleasurable? Or am I sort of numbing out? Everything. Yeah. Well, yeah, sometimes we numb out by like bombarding our senses, you know? So like Netflix and iPad and phone and <laughs> funky monkey. Fish food. Yeah. Right. Because the textural stuff. Yeah. Not chunky monkey. I don't like banana flavored anything other than bananas. Okay. Okay. Wait, is it banana? It is, it is banana flavored, right? I, I guess so. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of ice cream either. I like you saw my Cadbury mini eggs. Yeah, sometimes sometimes you just need a Cadbury mini egg. Sometimes there's nothing nothing wrong. You're not grasping, you're not deflecting, detracting. You just want the sensation of a Cadbury mini egg in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Because it's fun and it's like an Easter candy, and it's like I remember them coming in my Easter basket. At least the ones that I didn't get from my parents because that gave me like fruit. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the Easter baskets I got from other people where I could count on the contraband, the Cadbury mini eggs were in there. Were you raised in a, in a household where sugar was not allowed? And it was, it was pretty healthy. My house. Yeah. And my, my mom was a home ec teacher and she was a good cook and we generally had healthy foods at home. I think the most outrageous cereal we ever had was like Honey Nut Cheerios. So we had to go down to our neighbor's house for like the Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, the good stuff, the Lucky Charms. Yeah. But what's interesting is that, you know, like I don't love those things. I mean, I do love like peanut butter puffins. I don't think they existed in 1974. What created that desire for Cocoa Puffs was the absence of them in my house. Just like HBO. <laughs> yeah. So I have something here written. Hey, where is that? It's something about like how the thing that we that we restrict is a predictor on how we're going to eat it. Yeah. Restriction is the best predictor of binging. Restriction is the best predictor of binging. Yes. It's the thing that you can't have or that you've told yourself you can't have is the thing that you're going to binge on. So I kind of think this is good news because, uh, you know, I, I say in the book that I think that eating and, and our control over what and when and how much we eat is one of the first ways that we assert our autonomy as babies. 
when Nona is like saying, come on, here comes the choo-choo, have one more bite of mashed bananas. And we go, mm. we're saying, you know, me, not me. I have control over me. Mm. And so the fact that we, I mean, again, this is a contra- this is a combination of biological mechanisms and psychological mechanisms, but the fact that we rebel against deprivation is asserting our agency and our autonomy and our being in charge of ourselves. We don't like to be told what to do. You know? I can't stand it. Yeah. And eating is such a personal thing that it is it's downright depressing when somebody else sort of takes that control away from us or we hand it over because we think that they must know better. And it's pretty common for people to say you shouldn't eat that. That's the reason you're that's the reason you're fat is because you can't you can't control yourself. You don't know what to eat. Right. So it's taking agency and responsibility away from people. Yeah. Nobody likes that. No. And we believe it. We do. We've we've definitely we've definitely been misinformed about the way that all of these dynamics work. Even the idea that we can exact control, we can ha- exert control over our bodies, you know, by undercutting the number of calories that we take in. Is it's a myth. It's a myth and it and it really does reveal a blind spot of people with deep deep medical training. There is a clear bias against fat and fat bodies. And there is an almost unilateral association of thinness with health and fatness with unhealth, lack of health. Mm. I think one of the best books on this is Body Respect by Linda Bacon. It's in the list of resources at the end of the book, my book. And, you know, she really breaks this down, breaks down this data. And even like on her website, there's a lot of wonderful resources that reorient us and that reveal the biases that have shaped our perception of food and eating and diets and weight and fat. Mm. Because no amount of data showing that thin does not automatically equate with health and fat does not equate with a lack of health right. um, will dissuade them from telling people to lose weight. It's just like the studies that fail to show that losing weight in and of itself increases wellness. And yet the conclusions still are people should still probably lose weight and maintain a healthy weight. It's probably healthy, healthier for you to do so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So where do we go from here? You know, the good news is, I think, if if we make a connection with this approach, whether it's the intuitive eating approach, the eat to love approach with meditation as the foundation for connecting with the body, then we don't have to look for anything else for the rest of our lives. I mean, I talk about ways to engage with the path and how obstacles that come up are not proof that this doesn't work for you, but instead necessary teachers. And so I think if this speaks to you, you know, if you're listening to this and this speaks to you, it's worth exploring and 
opening yourself up to the possibility that there's nothing wrong with you. That's a beautiful message that's really important for people to hear. Each of you is perfect just the way you are, and you could still use a little improvement. Well, and that was those were the words of Suzuki Roshi. Right, right. And I think they're so beautiful. This idea that you have this Buddha nature. You are good. You are basically good. And when you accept that, then you can actually work to continue to you know improve your relationship with your body, your relationship with your community, um, your ability to see what's happening in real time and engage with it. It's only when you accept that that you can change. I mean, we all want to grow. Yeah. I think most of us do. It's part of the path. I mean, you don't really want to stay stagnant your whole life. We want to have better relationships. We want to have better capacity or more capacity to love. We want to accept our bodies. We want to love other people. We want to do engaging work. So, but we can start with the foundation of we are perfect right here, right now. Yeah. And there's always little tweaks. Right. But it's also important to kind of notice like that doesn't sell shakes or shake weights to think, you know, I'm fine <laughs> just as I am, <laughs> you know? Um, so there are lots of people who profit off of us not thinking that we're okay just as we are. It's true. Yeah. If if we truly believe that, then there's no reason to go and buy into magic magical eating diet culture. That's right. I think it's Gail Dines. She's a, a professor of like, she teaches about pornography and feminism. She has a quote that I'll probably butcher, but it's like, if women woke up and loved their bodies and accepted them as they are. Imagine how many industries would go out of business. Yeah. Spanx. What is that? Is that slimming, slimming undergarment? <laughs> Made by a woman. Made by a woman. Yeah. Made by a woman. That's just one of many industries that would crumple. Yeah. And it's an example of, of the internalization of this need to continually refine, you know, sh- polish the crystal of our bodies for the viewing pleasure of others that, that we then turn on ourselves. What you're suggesting I might imagine for some people is harder than magical eating. Meditation and cultivating awareness and believing that we are perfect just the way we are. Yeah. That can be really challenging. It can be. There, I mean, I'm not promising anyone a rose garden. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely uncomfortable. It's definitely not something that we can have black and white thinking about because, you know, the black and white thinking of dieting is sort of easy. Right? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's, um, there's an allure there. If you just do this, you'll get this. You will get body perfection. People will love you. Yeah. Right. But... I think we do get something subtler when we start to open to this other possibility. And it's sort of, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I think of magical eating and magical thinking as sort of just not being anywhere but here. But the interesting thing is when you do start to practice being here, 
that's when the real magic happens, mm. like the everyday magic of like a beautiful conversation with someone who's on his own path. Noticing the exact temperature of like the air that kind of wants to become spring, but isn't quite ready yet, you know, on your skin or like the perfect bite of your favorite food when you're like at your ideal level of hungry, you know, that's, that's the magic. The other magic is bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's in the future. No, it's all over there, somewhere over there. And we are over here here and that's the beauty of meditation right it happens right here right now right it's being where we are we're not trying to get anywhere michael carroll is a great um, buddhist teacher he talks about like meditation and mindfulness at work and he says we're not trying to get anywhere we're trying to be somewhere oh my god that's so good right yeah, and you know, I've been I've struggled with meditation for so long and I'm slowly getting into it and I'm and there's a lot of compassion around my practice. Yeah, I struggle with it too. And you're a meditation teacher. Yeah, I'm a meditation teacher. And the other day I was teaching this course that I teach with Susan Piver to help other people like like therapists and doctors and um, yoga teachers learn how to teach meditation to their students. And I was supposed to give meditation instruction. And I said, Susan, could you give instruction today? Because I feel like I need to hear the instructions more than I need to give them. That's awesome. Yeah. Everything is workable with this perspective. A lot of the stuff that I talk about is the stuff that I need to hear. I write the books that I need to read. Well, you wrote a really good one. Thank you. Good job. (laughs) thank you (laughs) uh is there anything that we didn't touch on i mean obviously there's so much there's uh, i had to stop writing notes because because you wanted to like discuss so many different things yeah because i I wanted to be able to have a conversation that wasn't just like rapid firing like forty thousand questions at you (laughs) i really really connected with it and i I do want to mention that the book was sort of written i mean it was was uh written to women Mm -hmm. And I got a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard from a number of men who really connected with it. Because I, I do think that the the messages, the teachings, obviously the Buddhist teachings are universal. Right. The way that magical eating is sold is particularly icky for women. But I do think also that men are more and more becoming the, the victims and the targets of this. I mean, just look at Marky Mark in a Calvin Klein ad in New York. Yeah. Like, come on. You know, that's yeah. that that's that's the ideal. Right. And that is that's a magical. There's a lot of magic happening there. Right. There's a lot of magic happening there. And I'm just a regular guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're just regular people. We're just trying to live our lives. We're trying to be happy. And so is Marky Mark. And so is the Victoria's Secret model in the 20-foot window around the corner from my office. Even Marky Mark doesn't look the way he does in that 20-foot billboard. Well, not anymore. Hey, we're all getting older. (laughs) Well, that's true. Yeah. There's one of the universal truths. Mm -hmm. That we're all getting older and that everything changes. Yeah. So the sooner we get with the program here, the better. (laughs) 
which is the right here, right now. Not, yeah. not the future Sean with abs. Mm-hmm. The Sean that that has like a, a lovely body. Mm-hmm. And whose body is an instrument to do the things that he cares about. Mm. Not an object to be chiseled to perfection. <laughs> I can get behind that that message. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Yeah. Uh, just one more final question. I'm just kind of curious what love means to you. It's a bit of a curveball, but. Yeah. I mean, I saw a quote today that someone had posted from Mr. Rogers, and it was about the, the active aspect of love that it's not this static thing and it's not a noun it's you know it's it's more active and that it's about accepting someone as they are including ourselves you know allowing them to be who they are which is also always changing yeah it's not easy someone said actually recently love is easy it's personalities that are loving personalities that is hard yeah. Well, and I had an ex once that said, human beings are little machines for creating conflict. Yep. And I think that's true. And I think once we kind of realize that and realize that we disappoint one another and we experience pain and we cause pain, then we can kind of work with it. Yeah. I just came back from Kripalu this weekend. Oh. Yeah. What have you, have you been? I've never been to Kripalu. Oh, you got to go. Yeah. You got to do a workshop there and then I'll, and I'll come in and attend it. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> uh, it was uh, Jason Gaddis who, who is the founder of the Rela- relationship school and the, and the, the workshop was on turning relationship conflict into love. And one of the take- takeaways was accept the fact that there will be conflict in your life and in your relationship forever. Yep. Cool. Now that you've accepted it, you can learn how to work with it. Right. Yeah. And I think that goes for our relationship with our bodies too. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be pain. There's going to be negativity. And if we can accept that, then we can get on with our lives and we can continue to engage with ourselves. And we can focus on climate change. For one. For one. I am so grateful to you for having written this book, for having taken this time, for sharing your dharma with us. I'm so grateful for you reaching out and that I'm just so happy that it spoke to you. Yeah, deeply. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm so grateful. Thank you. This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, first of all, I realized that I forgot to ask Jenna where we could find her. So you can find her at uh, eattolove.com. That's E-A-T, the number two, love.com. Eattolove.com. You got that? And you can find her book online where you normally find books online. 
Thank you, everybody, so much for spending this hour with me. I know your time is incredibly valuable, and it means the world to me that you have chosen to spend one hour of it with me listening to people talk about love. God damn it, isn't that awesome? Uh, You can find out more about me or The Love Drive at thelovedrive.com. You can support The Love Drive financially by going to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. And you can find me on Instagram every Friday. I do free love advice in the stories. Didn't do it last Friday. Definitely going to do it this Friday. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.